Welcome to On the Porch, the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Karen McElmurray writes nonfiction and fiction. Her memoir, Surrendered Child, was listed as a notable book by the National Book Critics Circle. She's also the author of the novels Motel of the Stars and Strange Birds in the Tree of Heaven, which won the Chafin Award for Appalachian Writing. She's the winner of the Annie Dillard Prize, the New Southerner Prize, among other awards, and several of her essays have been chosen as notable in the Best American Essays series. She's also a recipient of a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts. Her newest book is a real beauty called Wanting Radiance, and it came out this April from the University Press of Kentucky. Karen is a native of eastern Kentucky but now lives in Maryland. Thanks so much for being with us for this episode, Karen. Carlos, thank you. It's so great to hear your voice. It's so great to have these kinds of connections with the world as it is right now at a distance. Right. Well, one of the things about the folks who listen to On the Porch is that they love books. So let's start with you telling them what you want them to know about Wanting Radiance. Well, one of the things I think is that um, I just read a, a, a short novel by Toni Morrison and I got so aware, um, I loved the book so much, it was called A Mercy. And I, I'm aware all over again that what I love is writing that is very steeped in language, a love of sound, a love of poetry even. In a way, it's like my writing is a fusion of poetry and prose. So there's that, but I also want, to, I want people to know that it's, there's a plot there that's exciting, and I'm really pleased with what's happened with that. It's a book about fortune-telling, tarot cards, hanks, spirits, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. them, and, it's, and there's a murder mystery that the pages take you toward solving. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> when I think about your writing, the first thing I think about is how luxurious the language is. So I like the way that you said that, uh, a fusion of, of prose and poetry. I think that's absolutely true. So before we talk more about that, I wanted to ask you if you would just read the opening paragraph of the book, because that that language, I think, is really evident there. Um, sure. This is from, um, there, the book has a prologue. I'm fond of books that do. And this is a prologue, and it's in the point of view of the major character, Miracell Loving. Uh, she is grown now. She's Um, in her 30s, and she's looking back on her childhood in this particular time when she was 15, almost 16. She was my mother, but I called her Ruby, and I believed her hands were magic. She knew how to read cards and runes, how to find meanings in the shadows and photographs. Some people believe she could cast spells for anything from bringing a missing lover back to healing sickness, but I'd never seen the proof of any of that. The only thing I knew for sure was that my mother was afraid, partly of her own fortunes. The prophecies she claimed were enough to scare just about anyone, but I knew she was afraid she'd reveal the truth I wanted most, my own father's name. She'd look at me, head to one side, laugh when I asked about our past. Just tell yourself we come from a long line of tale-tellers and fiddlers, she'd say. She also said you couldn't trust a thing like love, but I loved it anyway. The highway at night with the car windows down and the radio playing Jim Morrison. I loved not knowing where we'd end up or for how long. I was 15, but I did the driving and studied Ruby's hands while she surfed the air. 
Well, I love that. I love the motion in that opening paragraph, but I love the language. So I'm wondering if, do you write so lyrically from the first time you sat down, or is that something that you polish and shine over time, or is it a combination of those things, or what? I would say it's a combination of things. I think at my best, when I sit down, I do, like this morning I I worked on an essay, and I was at the computer for maybe four hours. Um, Early in writing, those four hours would be sort of, I don't want to call it like a fugue state or a, a trance state, but it's like entering the work and being totally at one with it and the work. Right. But then... You know, more and more I learn the power of revision. You know, one of the things that you taught me some years ago, I think it's an exercise you you do with your students, something about taking a couple of pages and forcing yourself to cut them to one. Mm -hmm. You remember that? Yes. And I try more and more to do that, to get down to um, a friend of mine, the poet Alice Fryman, calls it the lovely bones of the work. Mm. And I don't mean I want to... Make the language spare, but I do want to cut away the flotsam and jetsam, and I, that takes draft after draft. Um, this novel probably, and that's not even really that many, maybe ten drafts, something mm-hmm. like that. Right. So, so it's kind of both, I guess. Well, to me, the the key to really good writing is a balance of creating a sentence that's just bursting with lyricism, but also it doesn't feel crowded and it doesn't feel as if you've consulted a thesaurus. And so your writing strikes that balance for me because it is so lyrical, yet it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel overly orchestrated. Um, So I I do think that, that that ability to prune it down, but also retain some of the magic you were able to do that. How do you respond to that? Thank you so much for saying that. I mean, one of my struggles over time with uh, lush sort of lyric writing that I love is how to lend it a sense of plot, a forward movement. Mm-hmm. And um, I I think I'm getting there. Real, I, I like this book. I think it's getting to that balance that you say. Um, I work real hard on that, this murder, this mystery plot, but at the same time lending voice, letting the characters speak in the way that I hear them speak and the way I hear the world speak. So, I, you know, I'm working for that balance a whole lot, and I'm really glad to hear you think it's it's going well in this in this book. Well, we're both from Appalachia, and one thing I encounter all the time is that people want to romanticize the place. And uh, yeah. personally, I find that as offensive as vilifying it. And so I love how you present the region as a complex place. You don't romanticize it, um, but you also don't vilify it. You present it as this complex place full of complicated people. So would you say that as much as you love Appalachia, you have also felt damaged by it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you've said so much there that I want to respond to the, the romanticizing I worry about that, frankly. I mean, I've lived away from home so much of my life, and I've gone back and I've gone back and I've gone back, and I worry that I've begun to romanticize it, that it's become a myth in my head that I'm recreating. 
but at the same, you know, there's that other part of it, the beautiful mess, but the, the, there's the other part of it. Yes, it has damaged me. It's been a damage I've had to struggle with, a self I've had to understand and recreate. I came from a very difficult family, I admit, mm-hmm. and, and I've had to shed that. You know, this book's partly about ghosts. It's kind of like shedding your ghosts, letting them go in order to understand who I am. Um, I mean, I'm writing, my writing is a very personal vision. You know, there's that. But I also worry that, you know, am I getting to the social vis- vision enough? Mm-hmm. I wonder about about that with the being far away from it. That's a complex answer, but I hope it gets to some of what you're asking. Well, when I read your work, I just I feel like you're presenting the real place because you're not you're not trying to convince people of how wonderful it is, nor are you trying to convince people of how horrible it is. You're just showing people, you know, that human beings who live in a place and the yeah. way that they are shaped by that place. So to me, that's what the best Appalachian writers do. I mean, what I love the most in coming home and in writing about home is just people. Mm-hmm. I have kept a journal off and on in my life. I'm not real, you know, disciplined about it. But in that journal, I write down people, people I see, people I meet. And to me, the, a lot of the beauty of writing is writing characters that step off the page, speak for themselves, characters that are rounded. So I hope that I achieve that. Mm-hmm. Well, as much as we can talk about the damage and things like that, yes. there's also always that longing in us for the place. And that's... Absolutely, in this book, I mean, it's it's right there in the title, even wanting radiance. I mean, radiance is the place, right? And so, like you said, you've lived most of your life away from Eastern Kentucky, but I I often see this longing for it in your writing, and I just I wonder is that longing fueled by the fact that you feel like you can't live here, and 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 the positive aspects of it that you left behind. Oh, <laughs> that goes to the heart of it, Silas. I mean, my mother is was from Prestonsburg, uh, Floyd County, and she, over the last eight, nine years of her life, had Alzheimer's. But I would drive back, you know, these long you know, nine-hour drives to get there, and as soon as I'm in the place, I'm thinking I'm back. Thank God I'm back, and I would feel like I could breathe again. But then as soon as I'm sitting at her bedside, I'm, I'm thinking, I, I need, I've got to get out of here. I've got to get out of here. I mean, I've frequently found it um, a difficult place to be as a woman, at least in my experience of growing up. I didn't have, uh, was not encouraged to have much of a voice to speak up for myself, nor were the women I grew up um, knowing. So at, the once, at once, I'm longing for this place where I can be most myself and struggling real hard to get away from it because it's a place I can't be myself. So that tension is always with me. Mm-hmm. I think that's why so much good writing, great writing, has come out of the region because it, there's that conflict, you know, and conflict always makes for good writing. Yeah, I mean, I love Thomas Wolfe. I don't know, Look mm-hmm. Homeward Angel. That's another of my favorite books, and it's full of that tension. You know, you can't go home again. Absolutely. 
This is On the Porch, and we're talking to National Book Critics Circle finalist Karen McElmurray here on WUKY 91.3 FM, listener-supported radio. Karen, I'd love for the listeners to hear a little bit more of the book. Um, do you have okay. a scene ready to share with us? I do. I mean, this book this book comes in um, a couple of several different voices. Um, I read a little bit in the prologue from Miracell Loving, but another voice that's near and dear to me in this book is her mother, Ruby. And I'm going to read a little bit of a couple of pages, a, page, a little over a page here from her voice. And this voice sort of, you know, grew. It, it became sort of, it began to happen sort of organically. And I was real pleased with how it became. This is from a, the second chapter, and it's called Then and There. Her first memory was reaching out of darkness toward the faces of the women ready to receive her. She held back, safe in the damp, warm inside her eyes open and already not sure of the world she was about to enter. Wait, her heart told her. Then they took hold of her hands, pulled her out into the light, into a room that smelled of tobacco and herbs, a room where her mother cried. A beautiful child, the women said, but Esther saw right away that her daughter had more than her share of mortal flaws. Why, just look at your hands, Esther said, when Ruby was six or seven, and sure enough, they were rough from mud in the yard, her palms threaded with fine cuts from the broom straw and cat briars she plucked behind the house. Maybe Esther had wanted a son instead, Ruby grew to believe. And so she took the broom straw and wove it into things that seemed more solid than herself. She filled tiny baskets with hatched-out robin's eggs, stones as smooth as she could find, or maybe Esther had wanted no child at all. Ruby worked to disappear, hiding inside quilts at the end of the bed, vanishing inside closets and coats in the summer heat. Her hands were so far from her bone body, she saw them as two lost things she no longer wanted. If there was such a thing as a mother's love, Ruby saw it fall through Esther's fingers like rusty water. And if the world held beauty, Esther kept it too close. She pulled the clothes all clean off the line and breathed their scent when she thought no one saw. And she kept bottles in all the colors she could find, blue and red and brown, hung by twine across the kitchen window to catch all the light coming in. Late evening, she sat at the mirror by the dresser, her own slender hands parting strands of her hair to make a long braid. Tell me about love, Mama, Ruby said, as she wound stray bits of thread on a spool. There's no such thing, Esther said. There's only God. There are so many references to hands throughout the book. Um, the book cover, which is really beautiful, features a hand. Um, you can see that if you go to the Facebook page for On the Porch. Um, can you talk about the motif of hands throughout the novel? Sure. Um, you know, I guess... There's my the tension in me between writing nonfiction and fiction, and so hands appear often in my nonfiction. I have these hands that are kind of, you know, like I was just reading there, kind of beat up hands because I've had a lot of. Um, I used to be a landscaper and greenhouse worker, so my hands hold, you know, sort of two kinds of ways of life, you know, being a laborer and then gradually becoming a teacher and a writer. 
But then hands became real important as I wrote these characters. Um, there's Miracell, who, as the main character, she's a fortune teller, but she's sort of a fake fortune teller. She pretends that she can read lines on palms. She pretends that she uh, can hold, take hold of a hand and understand a life. And then there's Ruby Loving, this ghost of the past who really was a fortune teller. And, you know, she she picked up the reins of her life. She, she took hold of her own life and left um, Eastern Kentucky in this book and went out west. She, you know, whether or not she kept hold of her own life, that's another matter. So there's, you know, all through the book there's women and their hands, mm-hmm. women and hands that do work, hands that know things or don't know things, lives that are taken hold of and held on to or let go of, you know, all, all those kinds of things, and mostly in women's lives as I experienced it in writing the pages. Well, it's I, I love the way it's woven throughout, especially this book. There are also <laughs> supernatural elements in the book. You've referenced a couple of them, the, the fortune telling. Uh, there's the little girl who sees ghosts. Radiance is known for its hauntings. Did you grow up in a family and or a place where the supernatural was part of everyday life? Those are some of my earliest memories, particularly my mother's mother, mother. Her name was Pearly Baston. My mother was Pearly Baston, too. But in my earliest memories, there were things like this place that your head made on a pillow, mm-hmm. the indentation, that you, and that you, if you saw stray hairs there, they were signs of that the spirits had left. Mm-hmm. Um, there were there were stories like that. I mean, my you know, the first thing I'd hear in the morning when I went to see that granny was... Um, Morning this morning, fine morning this morning. But then she'd say, how'd you sleep? Did you sleep all right in there? It's dark in there, wasn't it? (laughs) You know, there was sort of a fear, too. Uh But I did absolutely grow up, you know, hearing charms and spells. That same uh, granny would say, um, maybe it's even in the book somewhere, like you want something real bad, then you take an egg and you'd get an egg from under the chicken in her house in the hen house behind her house, and you'd write whatever it was on the egg, and then you'd bury it under a full moon, and you'd say, you will be mine, you will be mine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I did grow up, particularly that grandmother, believing in spells and charms right. and all kinds of superstitions, like do not walk under a ladder, mm-hmm. or do not bathe at a particular time you know, of the month or a particular time of year, so, yeah, I grew up with that. Yeah. I, did you? Oh, yeah. It always surprises me when I talk to people and they didn't, you know, because it was such a part of everyday life. I still cannot, if I enter a house through one door, I, I'm i not physically able to go out a different door because I was always thought that was bad luck. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know just things like that. This is On the Porch, and we're talking to National Book Critics Circle finalist Karen McElmurray here on WUKY 91.3 FM, listener-supported radio. But yeah, to talk about ghosts and the interpretation of dreams and things like that was just a very normal part of the day. And I love that about our culture, you know. Dreams, you know, I was always told, you know, dreams were like a sign, yes. like a message you were being given. And then you enter another life, and people are saying, oh, dreams are just the flotsam and jetsam of your daily life. <laughs> right, right. Okay. I love it when I have dreams. Me too. 
Was there any music that was particularly important to you while you were working on this novel? Music? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm I'm always really big on playing music while I'm when I'm particularly into the work. Mm-hmm. Um, music was probably more important in writing my memoir. All, all of this music from the '90s, and then you know also from my young hippie days. With this book, I mean, I think that the one the, a CD that I listen to again and again, I just love um, Jillian Welch. Do you like her? I love her, yeah. And this particular um, CD that someone sent me, it, you know, it's older now, but she, my friend said, you really got to have this, Jillian Welch's Soul Journey. Mm-hmm. And she said, you will love this, and I love it a lot because, um, as I didn't I didn't know that, but Jillian Welch is adopted, and mm-hmm. she... Um, she grew up loving and being this wonderful musician, but she didn't know that her birth family, that she later met, they were all musicians. And so this this CD is about, you know, Soul Journey is about finding who she was and where she's from, which is very much, I think, what this Wanting Radiance is about, discovering, mm. you know, her identity, her father, this murder, what happened, discovering what happened to make her who she is. So that's one of the things. But then, you know, there also I want to, like, go out in the car, you know, and take long drives. My road trips, which I'm not being able to do right now, and I like to play Nirvana real loud. Mm-hmm. So you only use it. <laughs> well, actually, I'm telling everybody that. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Soul Journey is uh, one of those albums that I pull out all the time. You know, it really holds up. It's a great record. And then there's that other song that I've played about a million times, especially in the last weeks. And I know I played it mm-hmm. when I was working on this book, Angel from Montgomery. Yes. Oh, my God, I can't believe we've lost John Prine. But that song in particular, I used to use part of part of it as a message on my answering machine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just love that song so much. What part did you use on the answering machine? <laughs> well, um, it's the part about um, how can somebody work all morning and go home and in the evening yeah. and nothing to say. Yeah, it's a great line. Yes. Yeah, that was that was particularly it on my answering machine. And then people would call and say, what was that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't let you get away without asking you about books you love. So can you name a couple of favorites or ones that have been particularly influential on your own work? Wow. I mean, that's one of those questions. Like, if you asked me tomorrow, I'd have a different mm-hmm. answer. But I, I'd say, you know, if I had to pick three books, and they'd be ones that I've read over and over again, do you have those that you read uh-huh. a lot? Yes. One would be um, Ceremony by Leslie Mormon Silco. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I could do anything like that book in my life, I would be, you know, die real happy. And it probably, you know, she has this great sense of multiple levels of time and that lyric language and magic, all of it. So that's one. And then also... Um, James A. G. Um, a Death in the Family. Mm, yeah. I mean, the prologue, you know, I said earlier I love prologues. That's mm-hmm. the prologue to The Death in the Family is just one of my favorite books and favorite pieces of writing in the whole world. And then also um, a different kind of thing, I, the third book would be uh, Dorothy Allison's Bastard Out of Carolina. Yes. I mean, I must have read that a million times. And she's so brave in her writing. She takes you right there into the hardest things and is proud of it and makes it into beauty. I just love it. What are you reading right now? Well, <laughs> I did just finish a bunch of student work this week, so 
but I finished um, yesterday uh, that Toni Morrison novel that I mentioned, uh-huh. uh, Mercy. Right. And I, I just on a, a jag of reading Toni Morrison. I'm going to read um, Home next, mm-hmm. and I have another of hers. The, I have all these books I have not read, and so I'm into reading Toni Morrison right now. But A Mercy is amazing if you haven't read that. Well, we love dogs on this show, so let's talk about your dog, June. She is <laughs> so pretty. Oh. Uh, how long have you had her? She is now uh, five and a half, and she is becoming um, a little more stout in her adult years. <laughs> I am, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as I said earlier, I am definitely becoming more stout. I eat constantly, <laughs> shelter in place. Yeah, but June is my kind of my salvation here during this quarantine time. I get up. She would like it if I would get up at six, but seven, I, you know, seven thirty, and take her for a very long walk each morning. Mm-hmm. So her June, her real name is June Bug. So, mm. and that came from when I was a kid. Did you ever do that? You tie a string on a June yes. bug. It's kind of cruel. I know. Is that? <laughs> <laughs> um, that so June Bug. Again, uh, she's a. Carolina dog mix, and she was a rescue. She's beautiful, and uh, I, I, she looks very well loved. Yes, she is. Well, I hope that all of you will look for Wanting Radiance, the new novel from Karen Malcolmary. You can find it wherever fine books are sold. Thank you so much for being with us, Karen. Thank you, Silas. And again, talking to you just makes me homesick and want to see you and sit on your porch. Yes, anytime. To close the show, we'll play the late, great John Prine doing a song that shaped one of the characters in Karen's novel. Until next time, be good to one another. Here's Angel from Montgomery. Thanks for listening to the podcast of On the Porch. I'm your host, Silas House. This episode was engineered and produced by DeBron Thomas at the studios of WUKY 91.3 FM in Lexington, Kentucky. We are listener-supported radio, and we thank you for joining us.